0: Now, before we dive into that in particular, we need to say a couple of things about this passage because it brings up many questions for us, many, many questions that Moses, who wrote this, has very little um, desire, apparently, to answer for us. So as the scene opens up, there's a snake that slithers into the garden. We think, what? where did the snake come from? You know, I thought God created everything good. Who is the snake? The snake is... We're, As we've come to know, if you're familiar with Christian understanding of this passage, is Satan himself or someone doing a snake doing Satan's bidding? We get that from the Bible itself. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that uh, Satan is the serpent of old, and so it identifies him as the one behind this. But where did he come from? How did the idea of evil even get here? We wonder and we don't know. We're told next to nothing about the origin of Satan in Scripture. Some people think that they know more than we actually do. The narrative that we normally assume is true and probably is true on some level is that there was a fall, from Satan, a fall uh, in the heavens, a cosmic fall. Satan Rebelling against God, this angel of light, which he is called in Scripture, perhaps a chief of angels of some kind, rebels against God. Now, where do we get that in the Bible? I'm not going to go into the details of it today, but if you want to look it up later, you can. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are both prophetic visions in the Old Testament that seem to imply something greater, a greater prince of darkness that fell at a certain point in God's story. Both of those passages are about historical realities when they're happening. Isaiah is during the Babylonian exile when Israel's is away in exile, and it's talking about the king of Babylon at first. And then it switches, seemingly, from the king of Babylon to some greater king, some darker prince. Ezekiel 28 does the same thing, except this time it's not about the king of Babylon, it's about the king of Tyre. And in that story, even more so than Isaiah, he talks about the Garden of Eden and, and perhaps this fall of Satan. We don't know how it happened, if it looked something like we can piece together from those passages or not. Presumably it happened at some point before this time, since Satan here through the serpent is actively working against God. There's a lot we don't know. We don't know whether talking snakes were a normal part of the creation. Probably not. Most scholars believe that this should have been the first sign to Eve that this was amiss, that there was a creature seemingly not made in the image of God who was speaking to her. But we do not know. What do we know? We know some things about the nature of evil that are so important for us to understand. The first and most important is that we know that evil did not originate with God. It is a rebellion against God that did not originate in Him. And importantly, related to that, the biblical story as it unfolds before us is not a clash between good and evil in the same way that many other stories describe the creation of things, the, order, the origin of things. There is not two equal and opposite forces called good and evil, a yin and a yang, two things opposing each other, and the hoped-for outcome is that the good will prevail. That's not the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is that God created everything good and that evil becomes this slithering thing that slips into His good creation. It's not equal and opposite. He is in control of it, and He will end it, certainly. Certainly. We also know if we read the rest of the Scriptures that sin and evil are things that are not blamed on Satan, but Adam and Eve. This is their sin, even though they are tempted, even though they are deceived, they are provoked. It's mankind who falls into rebellion against God. There is no devil made me do it excuse, even from the beginning. And the fourth thing we know about sin and evil that's really important to see is the nature of evil of it itself is that it is a parasite. It is not something unto itself. Evil is not a thing. Evil is a corruption of the good. It leeches out the good things that God has created and can only exist if good exists. The fall comes after creation. God made everything good. And here, when the serpent comes into the garden, notice what he doesn't tempt her with. He doesn't say, come away. I've made you another garden. A place where you can serve me and I'll be a better master. He doesn't present an alternative to God's world. He doesn't have that authority. He doesn't have that power. The only thing he has is the ability to corrupt what God has made good. This is the nature of evil. It's slippery, it's crafty, and it's content to slowly suck the life out of the good things that God has made rather than to present an alternative which it doesn't have the power to do. It's a parasite. How does it do that? How does it cause us to look at the goodness of God's creation and to drift away from our original intent? There are three things I want us to see about that this morning the first one we'll spend the most amount of time with and just mention the other two here at the end how sin works how it causes us to slowly drift from God and his presence to a desire to be like him first and foremost comes from doubting God's word doubting God's word the fundamental strategy of the serpent is found in verse 1 did God actually say any attack on God's good world begins with an attack on his good word did God really say did he actually say now what's important about that is that it brings in a concept that has been up until this point never seen before A questioning of God's Word. And it smuggles in the idea that what is true and what is good is not just what God has said, but it's our perceptions on what God has said. He's asking Eve, what did God say again? It implies that God's Word is actually subject to our approval or judgment. It makes us judge His words, and that sets up the stage for all of the rest of undermining of God's Word that the serpent and Eve herself do in this passage. There's four techniques that they use to undermine God's Word here. And we're going to go into the detail of the words that are used And it may seem like, hey, we're being kind of like overly analyzing some of these words, but I've already told you how finely crafted and perfect the book of Genesis is down to the numbers of words used. And so it is no accident that they get many of the words right of God's original intent, but they leave out and add to and distort God's word using four different techniques. The first one is this, exaggerating. Exaggerating that's where the serpent begins he says in verse 1 did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden that is an exaggeration a purposeful exaggeration on his part in order to deceive Eve God did not say that It's an exaggeration that's designed to steal the heart of God's words. If you remember what the heart of His word was, was you may eat of every tree of the garden. The intention of God was to give provision and grace and freedom and abundance. Every tree of the garden is for you, except for this. He gives the prohibition afterwards. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, we said that that's really important to understand the nature of God. The grace of God, the freedom of God precedes the rules of God, the prohibitions of God. He is first and foremost not created us to follow His rules. He did create us to follow His rules, but first and foremost, He gives us a freedom, a grace, a provision. This world is about His gifts. You may eat of every tree. And we compared it to giving a child freedom to run in a field, to go to a lush place and say, Go have fun. Just have fun, but don't go too far. Much better picture of the way that God makes the world. And yet here, Satan exaggerates the level of rules. Did he say you shouldn't eat of any tree of the garden? And Eve contradicts him. And he knows that Eve will contradict him. It is part of the strategy to exaggerate so that when she comes back with her answer, She's a little more reluctant, even though she disagrees. He's stating the obvious so that the seed is planted. Exaggeration. Do we exaggerate God's Word? People do this all the time. How often have you heard something like this? Well, you know, the Bible says that we can't have any fun. Or some other implication like that. You know, oh, the Scriptures, well, I don't know if I trust the Bible, it says that we can't eat shrimp or other shellfish. There's just like no attempt to understand the, the Scriptures, the nuance, the theology, the unfolding story, how it all relates. There's no burden to do that. It's just simple exaggerations. And the reason why we do that, or one might do that, is to dismiss it. That's the purpose of exaggeration. We exaggerate in order to dismiss. If I truly try to understand, I might relate to it more, and so it's easy to put it in this category. Over to the side. Exaggeration of God's Word causes us to doubt God's Word. That's the first strategy, exaggerating. Second strategy, minimizing. We see Eve begin to minimize in her response, minimizing God's word. Now, interestingly, she minimizes both the blessing and the curse. Verse 3. Sorry, verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She minimizes the blessing. She leaves off, of a, uh, off a word that God had used in Genesis chapter 2. We may eat of the fruit, but God said you may eat of every tree. Every fruit. She leaves off the blessing. Then she also minimizes the curse. At the end of verse 3, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And when she says, lest you die there, it seems like she's quoting from what God had told her. But in fact, she's minimizing. She leaves off a word. Because the original term that God gave her, the original words that He gave her were these. You shall surely die. In Hebrew, to emphasize something, you put the same root word twice. And what God literally said was, the day you eat of it, dying you will die you or the way that we translate it you shall surely die and here eve leaves off one of those and she just says you will die both eve and the serpent minimize by dropping off one of the terms of the name of god throughout the passage before in chapter 2 god has been referred to as the lord god the Lord God did this. The Lord God did that. Yahweh, Elohim, both terms. But when they come to the dis- dis- discussion, they drop off the Yahweh and just use Elohim. Just God. In fact, the same word sometimes used of other gods in the Bible. Elohim can just mean the gods of the Canaanites. And so by dropping off the Yahweh, by dropping off the personal name of God, God becomes a little bit more of an abstraction, a little more general. And all of this, they, would, they wouldn't say that they're talking about a different God. They wouldn't say that they're talking about the Canaanite God. It's just a way of minimizing what God, who God is. Minimizing is a strategy we use to round off the starkness of God's commands. When we don't think they fit culturally, politically, in our current understanding. So we start leaving words out. We start emphasizing certain verses above others. We start avoiding talking about certain things. Or when we do talk about them, we talk about them in ways the Scriptures don't talk about them. Because we'd rather talk about them that way. We'd rather talk about sexuality and gender and judgment and other things in certain ways that are palatable. And we feel a certain embarrassment for God. Like we need to defend Him against other people's opinions. And so we minimize sometimes the blessings, sometimes the curses, sometimes the very name and nature of God. The third strategy is adding. Eve adds to God's command in verse 3 when she says, neither shall you touch it. God never said to Eve or Adam that they could not touch the fruit, only that they should not eat it. And you might think, well, that's less bad, right? That's, that's not so bad. To add to God's word, surely that's not as bad as taking away from it. Maybe it helped Eve. Maybe it helped her to know. Like, if I just think, if I'm just going to add this command, don't touch. Is that bad to add to God's word? Yes. Why? Adding prohibitions to God's word distorts the under, our understanding of the goodness of God. You make him seem unreasonable when. He is only good and gracious. See, the thing about God's Word is it's never petty. It's never designed to be a litmus test for us or to to somehow limit us. If it does limit us, it's for our design. It's for our good. We believe in the goodness of God and therefore He gives us prohibitions sometimes but for our own good. And when we add to those prohibitions, then we make him seem like the things that he cares about are the rules in and of themselves. Ask yourself who Jesus was more upset about, the ostentatious sinners in Scripture or the Pharisees. Both of them sinners. Both of them needing Christ and His message. But he had a hardness towards those who believed that by adding to the command of God, they could somehow achieve righteousness. You know, I was thinking about an old hymn. Uh, that I, I don't know where I first heard this. A long time ago. But There's this hymn, and it's got an awesome title. because I wish we wrote hymns like this still today. But the title of the, of the hymn is this, There's Danger in the Flowing Bowl. I mean, that's, that's a pretty epic title. I wish we could write something like that these days. But it's a horrible hymn. There's danger in the flowing bowl. It was written during the Prohibition time in America. And you might imagine this is about alcohol. Yes, there's danger in the flowing bowl. Um, An alcoholic reference. So somebody wrote this during the time when alcohol was illegal in the United States. And many Christians were ready to jump on that bandwagon and to do things with Scripture to talk about that. And so let me just read you the first verse of this hymn. There's danger in the flowing bowl. Touch not, taste not, handle not. T'will ruin body, ruin soul. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Will rob the pocket of its cash. T'will scourge them with a cruel lash. And all thy hopes of pleasure dash. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Now it's clearly saying, touch not, taste not, handle not. This flowing bowl, right? And when it says that, touch not, taste not, handle not, it's quoting from Colossians chapter 2. Paul in Colossians 2 says, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. However, as some of you perhaps are already picking up on, Paul is actually quoting someone else there and saying, Don't say, touch not, taste not, handle not. He's not saying, Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. He's saying, be careful of saying those things because when you say those things, you might be in danger of adding to God's Word. And he's saying human rules. Human rules, they seem like they, are, they have wisdom, he says in Colossians 2, but even though they have the appearance of wisdom, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so I find it very ironic that a hymn that was designed to stop the indulgence of the flesh quotes exactly what Paul says, is ineffective at doing so. It's not effective to add to the, to the rules of God. It's dangerous, in fact. The last technique is opposing. Flat out contradicting God's Word. Which is exactly what the serpent finally slithers his way to this point. Of opposing God in verse 5. For God knows. Sorry, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Interestingly, Satan doesn't leave off God's emphasis. Dying, you will die. He just flat out opposes it. In fact, he adds his own emphasis and puts not in the first position of the sentence, lo, not, you will not die, surely. Exactly the opposite of what God has said. And this is what it comes to. This is the pathway. Doubting God's Word begins in minimizing and it begins in exaggerating, it begins in adding to or diminishing, but it ends in utter opposition. When we question God's words, we try to make Him into our image rather than being made in His, which is what we are designed for. So I ask us, where have we said or thought or implied in our hearts, has God really said this? There are many people questioning Scripture in its generalities, and also its particularities. And we have to be people who look at those generalities and particularities and to try to understand them in their context, but then ultimately believe them. You need to hear this, even though it's a little blunt to say it like this, it's just the way that it is. The words, has God really said, are the words of the serpent. They always lead us astray. Though sometimes... There's the work to understand. Sometimes we don't fully understand a Scripture passage until we understand its context. Sometimes things may seem harsher than they are in Scripture. Sometimes that does happen, but I'm asking about the heart. Is the intent to try to make it palatable first and then understand it, or is it to understand it and then believe? Because, has God really said, is a path away from the commun- of communion with God. Isn't it interesting, I should also note that the first contradiction of God and Scripture is over the idea of divine judgment. The thing that Satan says surely will not happen is the ultimate dying you will die of spiritual death. Isn't it still appealing to us? to try to live without that consequence, without the idea of death, physical or spiritual. The lie is still there. It's still within us. It begins by doubting God's Word. Secondly, today, it leads to doubting God's goodness. will be much briefer here, but we see the natural consequence. In verse 5, after he has undermined God's Word, Satan re- leaves the realm of what God has said and goes straight to what God intends. Verse 5 For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here he attacks not what God has said, but what God's motivation is. He casts aspersions on God's goodness. The reason why God doesn't want you to do this is because He doesn't want a rival. He doesn't want you to be on His same level. He wants to limit you. He wants to put you in your place. God is holding you back. He's not good. He hasn't provided for you. He doesn't want the best for you. And this is the drift, tragically, that we see all the time. It begins with doubting God's Word, but quickly, when people doubt God's Word, the reason why the intent behind it is because they doubt God's goodness. They believe that it would be better to understand the world in a different way. If maybe God thought my way, if He said certain things my way, then truly He would be moral. But that is backwards. God doesn't exist to our standards. We exist to His. That is the created order. Woody Allen, famous movie maker, said something very tragic he said if God exists I hope he has a good excuse that's the mentality right that's the mentality that we can fall into if God exists I hope he has a good excuse meaning I hope he can he can come up to my standards of of what I think is moral or we say it more gently sometimes if I were God I wouldn't do that or surely God wouldn't do x y or z because it doesn't make sense to us at first When God suddenly doesn't meet our moral standards, certainly the world is backwards from what it was created to be. Doubting God's Word, doubting God's goodness, third and finally, it leads to desiring to be God. That's the path. That's the drift. Once you doubt God's Word and His goodness, it's easy to then just see how you could do better, how you could be God. God. If God's Word can't be trusted and if His goodness can be questioned, why not try our hand at it? And so the dominoes all fall and Eve acts on this impulse in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Tastes good, looks good, Hold spiritual value. Why not? Those three things, by the way, line up exactly with First John's definition of worldliness. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. All three at work, he says, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And it began here with Eve's lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that she so desired. And she passes it to Adam. And he eats. He shares in the responsibility. In fact, the Scriptures hold him to a higher accountability. And more often than her, he is the source of the sin. Why? Because he was the covenantal head and it was his responsibility that he failed. The Scriptures say he was with her the whole time. And he ate. What were the results of this? Did it give them what they wanted? Did it provide what the serpent said it would provide? And you may expect me to answer the question with a no, it didn't. But that's not quite right. The answer is yes and no. What they learned was that what had been told them was a half-truth. All sin is a half-truth. And all half-truths are ultimately lies, if you think about them. But they contain a grain of truth. And this is what happened in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They had something they didn't have. Knowledge. It was a terrible knowledge. They had sight. It was a grotesque sight. Their knowledge and their sight both revealing how naked and ashamed they were. So, what the fruit gave them was power, but it was a power that imprisoned. It gave them not the full knowledge of God the promise of the serpent, but a full knowledge of their own emptiness and exposure. And I can't help but think of it, even though it's a silly example, the the Disney movie Aladdin, if you remember the ending of Aladdin, that story, the great Jafar, the enemy, he's he's about to destroy the good, and, and so Aladdin tricks him into asking for his last wish, and He wishes to be a genie more powerful than any other genie in the world and the genie grants him his wish to be the most powerful genie in the world. But then as Aladdin is quick to remind him with that power comes a prison that he lives in a lamp and that he does others' biddings forever. In the same way, the power that we received in the garden Was a power, but it was a prison as well. Trapping us in, making us aware how exposed we are. And they made coverings for themselves, but those coverings would never be enough to cover their shame. And even still now, we seek to cover ourselves so that we won't be ashamed of who we are. It would never be enough. It was a half-truth. We received power, but we could never be God. Even after eating from the tree, it did not transform us into God. The disobedience that we participated in, didn't reveal suddenly an independence. It didn't give us a leveling with God. So now suddenly we are like God as the serpent promised. It didn't reveal our independence. The thing that it did was it created a chasm between us so that what was possible before, communion with God, being with God, our original intent We drifted away instantaneously from a communion with God to be with God. In an attempt to be like Him, we separated ourselves completely from Him, creating a chasm that was insurmountable for us. We could never cover ourselves enough. We could never repent enough. We could never work our way back to the communion that we had with God. Until the second Adam. Until Christ, who did what Adam could not do here, who believed and trusted in the Word of God when Satan tempted him, drew him out into the wilderness for 40 days, and when Satan slithered up to him and said, in so many words, Has God really said? Has God really said it's necessary for you to be here? Has God really said that you must be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Has God really said that the Son of Man must suffer? Has God really said that this is necessary for you to suffer for your dominion? I give it to you freely. I'll give it to you right now. Jesus succeeds where the first Adam fails and says, yes, God has said this. And he gives him chapter and verse and defends with the Scriptures the words of God. He defends the goodness of God. He was God Himself. And He is the only one who bridges the gap that was created by our sin. The only one who brings us back into communion with God, the original intent that we were created for. And He does so by giving of Himself. It's His body broken. His blood poured out. I wonder if you noticed the language. Eve took the fruit and ate. Unthinkable now not to think of that in the context of what we know about the scriptures to not hear the echo of christ's words take and eat this is my body given for you it was a meal that sealed our rebellion and it is a meal that brings us back into communion with god it's the meal of christ himself only by feeding on Christ, only by having Him, only by being covered with the loincloths of Christ, only by partaking of His body and blood, His sacrifice and all that is contained in it. That is the only way that the chasm between us and God can be mended. What Jesus Christ does when you are in Him and united to Him and when you partake of Him regularly, He brings us back to the place where communion with God is possible. The thing that we originally were designed for, but could never get back ourselves, He gives to us of Himself. He brings us back, not to be like God in all the ways that the evil one promises, but to be what we were originally designed for with God to be with Him forever. Let's pray. We pray for Your protection and deliverance, Father, from the words of the evil one. Have you, has God really said... I pray that even now, what would happen in our hearts is a submission, a bowing the knee to you, the Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, who has said that if we sin, we surely shall die, but has also spoken a better word by His Son. That if we're in Christ, we are a new creation. That if we're in Him, we are heirs. Sons of God, daughters of God, joint heirs with Christ. So we thank you, Lord, for your provision for us, your covering that we could not cover ourselves, your bridging of the gap that we could not bridge ourselves. And I pray that we would delight in and taste of Christ today, trusting that he is the only way back to you, back to what we were designed for, to be with you forever. Help us by your spirit to believe and trust in that today. Amen.